Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do on these podcast episodes. My name is Mitch Schultz. And again, I am your fine host for these podcasts. And I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. I'm going to be talking on a, uh, talking about a subject today that I have not tackled, uh, only because I had not found someone that I felt was adequate enough to cover the subject of the gospel and creation, uh, the whole conversation about creationism, evolution, the scriptures role in how we shape our understanding of creation, the historicity of Adam, the historicity of Genesis, the importance of the first six chapters of Genesis to what we believe about the world. And uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, all of these things and much, much more, uh, even the impact on how that's having that, you know, what we believe about creation uh, explains what is happening in the degradation in in culture and society. And uh, I'm having that conversation with Chuck Boltman. Uh, he is a father to 11 kids, and he is retired now, he lives in Michigan. He spent most of his career teaching uh, in high school and is a man who is an expert in understanding science and creationism. Uh, you're going to be really, really challenged with this conversation. It's not just a slinging of ideas. Uh, this is something that has tremendous impact. Uh, to uh, ourselves and also to those who uh, we love dearly, who perhaps are being influenced by a lot of things in our society. So let's go ahead and jump into that interview now. All right, I have the privilege this morning to interview Chuck Boltman. Uh, Chuck, good morning. Good morning. I see your wife looking behind your shoulder, and oh, yeah. she's obviously making sure that you don't make any mistakes. And it's maybe a cattle, she'll got a cattle <laughs> prod. She'll take care of it. Yeah, if I see you uh, squirm, I'll know why. Uh, well, listen, you uh, you're a father to uh, one of my best friends in the world, Ian Boltman, and he kindly connected us. Uh, but we're we're going to be talking about something that's a, a real burden and passion for you, and that's creationism. And uh, so we're titling this Creation, Faith, and the Gospel. Uh, but talk first about just share a little bit about yourself, um, your family, what you do, and what led you to what you're doing now. And I always like to ask people, what is it that they're most passionate about in life? Well, uh, I'm a retired high school teacher, and I taught all the lab sciences in high school. I loved uh, the outdoors, and so I would take kids on field trips. My wife and I um, probably took a, a few hundred kids on field trips to uh, study the Ice Age. We went to the Rockies. We went to the Badlands. We went to caves. We just really took kids out there and would try to help connect them to nature and to God, and I thought one of the most uh, interesting things that we did. We, we take them to the Badlands and separate them by a mile apart in the primitive area and then leave them for six hours with nothing but a canteen and notebook and whatever they, yeah. uh, they had on for clothes. And we pick them up six hours later. They had a whole different view about civilization and mom and dad and all kinds of stuff. After I bet. In the mm. wilderness for six hours. So 
that was an attempt to help him get a grip on reality. And uh, that's kind of what made me tick as a teacher. Uh, I came mm -hmm. from a Christian family, um, grandparents, great-grandparents, all of that stuff all the way down. Um, we had lots of kids. Um, yeah, 15, right? Uh, no, not 15. Not that many? Okay, that's Ian. No, Ian has 11, right? Or nine? No, we, we, had, uh, we had 11. He, he 11. Was, yeah, I beat him by one. <laughs> Um, my, uh, personal journey of, of, of education was going to, uh, Christian schools all the way through, but they never addressed any of this stuff. Um, I went to everything from kindergarten all the way through four-year college. And even though my professors sometimes in college would acknowledge stuff, nobody told me how to think about evolutionary issues. Mm. Um, I just cruised through, got my degree in biology, and then went off to become a teacher. And I continued to go um, to school, National Science Foundation things, in the summertime. And so I got out to uh, University of Washington and Michigan Tech and all those places. But everybody assumed evolution. And I'm trying to be this Christian kid that grew up in a nice Christian home. And I found a tension in my brain that I just didn't know what to do with. So after going through all of these secular places, uh, I decided to just kind of stuff my Christianity um, in one part of my brain and say somehow or other God used evolution to get us here. I don't know how, and I'm going to move on. And so I went and taught school for probably eight to 10 years. And then my, my dear wife said, we need to go to this conference on creation. And I said, I don't really want to talk about it anymore. And she said, well, I think you ought to go. So we went, and there I heard um, a couple of guys talking about a couple of verses. And the two verses were uh, the one, let's see if we can quote it here. No death before Adam was the one thing that they brought out there. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as the one man through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. That was the first thing that really started hitting me, because if sin was the cause of death, then theistic evolution where I had ended up wasn't going to work. Now, define, define, define Christian uh, or theistic evolution. Well, theist means God and evolution means without God. And mm. <laughs> so the, the whole idea of how evolution works is that you have to kill off the worst and keep the best. And so if you're going to get man through that process, that means that there was death long before man evolved. Therefore, okay, I've got a big problem here. I yeah. can't wow. make them both work. So a lot of people try to get out of it with different compromises, which I won't bore you with right now, but there are little finagling things that people do. But the second thing I learned there was that the flood was truly global. And, global. and when I took my, my courses uh, in my college, they were telling me that, you know, they were just hunters and gatherers in those days. They didn't have the tools to build anything. Um, animals weren't domesticated. Yeah, just a big bunch of stuff which basically said, don't believe the account of Genesis. 
including the genealogies. And that's what I got from my nice Christian college that I went to in my mm-hmm. year. So I came out of there going, okay, I'm just going to have to be a theistic evolutionist. But then I started reading the Bible better, and I started studying science better, and I found out they're not compatible. And it's really interesting. I I got a video clip of Richard Dawkins, the big speaker on evolution, and Mm -hmm. somebody was interviewing about uh, evangelicals and and evolution, and he said, you know, the evolution... uh, problem seen by the evangelicals they probably have it right um there's mm. a incompatibility between evolution and christianity but he says it's the liberal theology people uh that they want to entertain it but he says i really think the evangelicals have got it right yeah yeah wow well you um we're going to get into a lot of <clears throat> a lot of specifics here uh, you do i'd listen to a series of talks you did and uh, and I think it's important to understand the the larger work here. You uh, you you describe this as a war uh, of sorts, and you uh, uh, you talk about Colossians two eight quite often. Let me read what that says. See it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Um, why is that important? How does that shape this conversation that this is a battle, a struggle? Well, and not that, just a not just a tension of ideas. Yeah, that word captive that you've got there mm-hmm. in the translation in the King James is the word spoil. Mm. And I thought, spoil you, beware lest anyone spoil you. And then my wife said, Oh, that word spoil, that comes from spoils of war. You're taken captive and you're a slave and you're going to somebody else's country. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. philosophically, we can get trapped and taken into a whole different worldview, um, an atheistic one, and we don't realize we're getting drawn in at first. And uh, the other verse, I don't know if I mentioned it, is the one in Jude. It's, it's verse three, and I'll read that one for you. Mm-hmm. Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so contending for the faith is something we have to do. We have Mm -hmm. to fight for it. And uh, our culture is doing a very good job of catechizing our children away from Christian theology. Of and, course, yeah. And uh, when I was a kid, I had to go to catechism. Um, and I guess the Catholics have catechism, the Lutherans have it and all that. And what that was is a systematic way of looking at how everything fits together from, from the biblical worldview. But most kids, I don't think, are getting that anymore. They're, they're getting yeah. catechized by the media. They really don't know what the Bible says. And so they're easily swayed by arguments of... Uh, secular people to say that the Bible's not relevant or it's got contradictions and all that stuff. So uh, somehow or other, we have to contend for the faith. And the very first thing the Bible tells us that God wants us to know, it is the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. And man, that just flies right in the face of the whole culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that this is a, again, you have that image of a cosmic spiritual battle that we have to see ourselves in a war 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a war always has two, two ideas, you know, two uh, desires to, you know, one, one, especially the enemy we see as wanting to take mm-hmm. us captive. Uh, and so that, that's, uh, yeah, that's super helpful. Um, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to talk about specifics a little bit, you know, how you address certain things that keep coming up. I'm going to go down to a question that's later in here, but I think it's relevant to what you're sharing. Uh, you, you talk a lot about how science cannot prove history uh, and cannot disprove the Bible. And, um, and then you also talk about, you know, just the nature of science that has to have a, a present, repeatable, observable uh, aspect to it. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. What do you mean? What do you mean by operational science, forensic science? Because those were things that I was fascinated by when yeah. I was... And then after that, we'll talk about, you know, the flood, dinosaurs, ice yeah. age, all those yeah. sort of things. You know, it, it's interesting because a lot of people, um, I have trouble getting them to engage with the idea. I'm going to talk about the limitations of science. And they go, yawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's that got to do with the Bible and, and that? So um, I guess I would like to give a shout out to those who are teaching Uh, particularly pastors, that you don't have to give up the authority of the Bible for scientific reasons. Mm. What you need to do is you need to dig deeper. Notice that that thing that says that you get captured, you get by deceit. Um, What we're seeing today is a whole lot of um, smoke and mirrors and a, a lot of shaping the data so that it comes out to be the way people want it to be rather than it actually being the true uh interpretation of the data. So what I would say is if you run into something that seems to contradict the Bible, then don't give up the Bible, dig deep into the data and find out where the deception is. Mm. You've got to find sources of scientists that honor scripture and then learn how they explain the things. In other words, Christian scientists and going on YouTube and looking at all of this stuff back and forth and it can just drive you nuts. You come down to what's the authority in your life? Is it the Bible? Yeah, it is. Okay. So if this contradicts the Bible, then something's wrong with it. Let's go find out. So there's no scientific reason because the newest discoveries in systems biology and radioactive dating of C-14, the James Webb telescope, um, they discovered these mini robots in our cells, and the origin of life uh, research is stalled out. They can't get life to happen. So none of that is a, you know, that stuff is saying the evolutionary story is lacking a lot, and there's no reason for us to compromise. So let's go to your question about science. Um, science is in a position, it's a process. And <laughs> when someone says follow the science, they're messed up. Um, mm. it's, it's not a position. Um, science is always tentative. There's uh, three things that I, I, I like to point out to people. Number one is that science can't prove or disprove history. And the reason with that is that you have to play forensic stuff. Like if you come upon a crime scene, you got to look for all the clues and then you guess at what the right answer is. But we're discovering that uh, in the past, your worldview, the way you view life and reality shapes what you see as data 
to use in discovering stuff. You even throw data out that contradicts your worldview. So uh, where are they going here? Well, you're talking about science. Uh, yeah. You can't, yeah, can't prove, can't or prove history. So we can uh, try to prove whether things are plausible or not, but the miracles aren't plausible. So you're out of luck when it comes to trying mm. to scientifically nail everything down in history. So that's the first one. It can't prove history. The second thing is it's always changing. If you haven't figured it out by watching COVID research and uh, COVID instructions on how to stay alive during a pandemic, that's following the science. And what did it do? It bounced all over the place. Mm. It doesn't have final answers because there's always an option that there's going to be a new piece of data that will show up that'll throw everything out. And how many times have we seen headlines that say, oh, we're going to have to rewrite whatever this is or whatever that is. Like the James Webb is going to get us to rewrite part of the Big Bang Theory because it just doesn't agree. So science is not, is not revealed truth like the Bible is. We have to gather it. We have to figure it out. And we make mistakes. We have a bias. We have peer pressure. Man, the peer pressure is horrible out there. If you want to disagree with the main science of today, you can expect to lose your job. Mm -hmm. And my job was always, you know, in the last 10 years in jeopardy because of people thinking, oh, you're a creationist or you're a Christian or you believe in God and you can't have that in school. And I had one lady that pottered the local university who was trying to get me shut up or fired or whatever for about the last five or six years that I taught. Mm. So, yeah, the, the thing with, uh, with science is people just have to stop buying the idea that science says. No, people say. Yeah. They use science and they use a worldview to interpret science. And I, I, I think there's kind of an interesting thing about um, the way we do science today. Um, in order for it to be done you have to assume that the universe is going to keep acting the same way. If I light a match today, it works. If I light a match tomorrow, it ought to work. Um, we have to assume that people are going to tell the truth when they do their science and they're going to write it up in the journal and it'll be true. And then the other thing is that we have to believe that we can use our rational minds and use logic, laws of logic, in order to figure stuff out. So all of that's necessary in order to know anything in science. However, if you take a secular view, which is the Big Bang Theory, and everything came randomly, you have no assurance philosophically of why the universe should have laws, of why morality is necessary, and why logic works. Because logic is not material, and all they have is material. So I like to, to look at secularists and say, you know, when they do science, they can do good science if they are kleptomaniacs. They're stealing the Christian worldview, <laughs> mm. which is, yes, God made a, a cosmos out of a chaos. They're still stuck with a chaos with the Big Bang. God created the cosmos. He gave us absolute morality. He tells us we need to be honest. And he says that he's a God that reasons. 
So we have a philosophical basis biblically to do science and to know stuff. They simply steal our stuff, our presuppositions, mm. and then they use it to prove stuff and then try to prove we're wrong. But if we're wrong, then, then they're It's wrong. A, house, a house of cars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I'd like to uh, lower the plane a little bit and focus on, on some specific uh, areas that are uh, questions, confusions, and, and all of this is, uh, uh, I mean, the reality is that this affects people's faith. It, it, uh, yep. it causes confusion. And so it, we'll, we'll do that and then back up, you know, uh, climb the airplane back and look at from a, you know, 30,000 view again. Um, and I'm not being incidental about this, but I think these are important things. You talk about Noah and the ark and getting, uh, you know, how, how did all the animals fit into the ark? Yeah, well, that's that's solved with the, the verse that says that the kinds are going to be saved, the different kinds, not the different species. And mm -hmm. so people conflate the idea of species and kind. They say you can't get all the species on the ark, it won't work. However, the number of kinds that there are in the world, kinds of animals, is really low. And so I was surprised to discover that lions and tigers can hybridize, and ducks mm. and geese can hybridize, and camels and llamas can hybridize, and sheep and goats can hybridize. So you don't need to have sheep and goats on the ark. You just need a representative. Wow. <laughs> so I love it, that. it comes down to you probably have less than 16,000 animals on the ark, and that's very doable. Yeah, and that's a big, long discussion, but the average size animal is only the size of a rabbit worldwide today. So what does God send? Is he going to send the biggest dinosaur he could find? No, he'll send a little one to juveniles. Mm -hmm. Old people don't reproduce very well, so get the youngsters on. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, too, that less than, less than half of the ark had animals. Yeah. So if you struggle with an issue of space, that's resolved there. Yeah. Okay. Why are there why why are dinosaurs not mentioned in the Bible? Okay, dinosaur was invented as a word in 1841. The King James was translated 1611. So you would never get the word dinosaur in a King James Bible uh, until you got later on. However, now since we've been evolutionized to believe that dinosaurs lived billions and well millions of years ago, not billions, um, then. People look at the Bible when it talks about dragons and says, well, that can't be a dinosaur because people and dinosaurs didn't live together because they lived millions of years ago. Well, wait a minute. How did you get your millions of years? Well, I, that came from the rock layers. That's the geology we'll talk about. But anyway, um, the dinosaurs are not in there. They are under the name of Tenin, which is a Strong's number 8577, if you're interested in looking it up. <laughs> which is translated as dragon 21 times, serpent three times, whale three times, and a sea monster is one for a total of 28 times. And it's likely that some of those dragons are actually dinosaurs. And there's a terrific book, which is expensive, but you ought to get it. It's called Dire Dragons by uh, Vance Nelson. And he shows 
artwork from around the world, sculpture from around the world, pots from around the world, carvings from around the world showing dinosaurs and people or just dinosaurs. Like you go to France and you're going to find dinosaurs carved on their middle age uh, mm. buildings. Uh, and and there's these burial stones down in South America that have carvings of dinosaurs on them. Of course, people that believe dinosaurs are millions of years old are going to say those are faked. And we're going to say, well, they don't have to be faked. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, fascinating. They're not there. Yeah. What do you do with the ice age? You know, ice age, uh, it's, you know, people study layers and rocks and conclude yeah. that it's millions of years. Uh, to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you left the Ice Age Museum when you left Wisconsin, and you're down to where now? Where do you live? Georgia. Yeah, no <laughs> Ice Age down in Georgia. <laughs> okay, so, so the Ice Age um, is really obvious here in Michigan, and I was never taught about that in my Christian school stuff either. So I didn't know what to do with the Ice Age. And then when I started teaching in high school, I had to teach about the Ice Age. And I went, duh, how do I plug this into the Bible? I can't mm. find it. Some people try to find frost and ice and go. But I don't think that's really what it is. Because the, the whole biblical account takes place in the Middle East. And the ice didn't come down in the Middle East. So, so there's no reason to be there. Australia is not in the Bible either. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there. So um, the Ice Age is supposed to be uh, tripped off by changes in the orbit of the Earth. It's called the Milankovitch um, hypothesis. Well, the main paper from 1976 that's supposed to establish the timing of that thing, which would actually get everything to line up and cause the temperature to drop, has now been disproven. The data was wrong. The only way to explain an ice age is a biblical flood, and here's how it does it. If you want more snow, you need more water in the air. If you want more water in the air, you have to heat up the water. What did the global flood do to the ocean? Heated up the water. So what we had was a one ocean. Would that ocean be bringing the warm water up to the northern part of the earth? Most likely. Okay, so we have a North Atlantic at 80 degrees. The flood ends. We now have the, the mountains rising up. The land is exposed again. During the winter time, the land cools faster than the water, so the warm, moist air of the ocean blows across the cold continent of the winter, and you don't get snowstorms, you get snow blitz. And it builds the whole thing up in probably under a thousand years, more like 500 has been the guess. Mm. And then after, when water evaporates, it cools everything. You know that from getting your hand wet and then blowing on it, it gets cold. Well, the same thing happened to the North Atlantic. And the North Atlantic got cooled, the surface freezes, and now you no longer have a source of water. So no matter what the temperature is up there, you're not going to get as much snow. So when we look at the, uh, the northern and the southern poles, we say, well, they're deserts. They hardly snow at all, of course because it's so cold up there, you don't get water into the air under cold conditions very much. But when you had a warm ocean right after the flood, it was just terrific. And it just piled up where the, the uh, air currents came onto the continents and we got it and it, it didn't freeze everything. It, it skipped part of Siberia, it skipped a bunch of Alaska for most of the time. So it's an indication that it didn't happen because of a cooling of the earth, it really happened because of warming of the oceans 
And once that was cut off, then the sun could melt back our ice age. So one guess by a creation uh, meteorologist is it took about 500 years to build up and 200 years to melt away. And we're still recovering from the ice age. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, you're not a big fan of, of carbon dating, I assume, or you, you definitely have a different explanation of it. Uh, tell, tell us what's wrong with that. And I, I love the illustration you give of a man eating an apple and getting struck by lightning. <laughs> well, I'm sure you haven't simulated that or tested that. No, before. I haven't. <laughs> no, my, actually, my wife told me to take that out and make it less deadly. So I, I took it out. <laughs> no, no, I like it. <laughs> um, well, carbon-14 dating is actually our friend. The okay. way it works is it's like a candle. If you if you get one of these big, tall um, wedding candles that they put up, they last for about an hour. Um, if you find one that's half burned down, you can say, well, it burned for about a half an hour. That's when the wedding was you know, started and they lit them. Okay, fine. So that's how you kind of use, use something as a timer. Well, carbon-14 is in everything. Um, because it's created in the atmosphere by cosmic rays. It then creates carbon dioxide, which has carbon-14 in it. And we breathe that in. We also have plants breathing it in and making all of the plant material. So all of our vegetables, all of our fruits have carbon-14 in it, the rate of about today, about one out of a trillion carbon atoms and living things is radioactive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a simple deal. You just take whatever died and find out how much is left, how the C14 is left. It, it goes away half of it about every 5,700 years. And so if half of it's missing, then the object you're looking at is 5,700 years old. Well, fine. So It turns out that carbon-14 goes away so fast that if the whole Earth were made of carbon-14, a lump that big, in a million years, there'd be none left. Let that sink in. There'd be none left. Mm. Mm. So if there wouldn't be any left, then anything we can find on the Earth that has carbon-14 in it has to be younger than a million years old. Okay, you follow so far? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you dig up a piece of a dinosaur bone and you date it with carbon-14 and my goodness there's carbon-14 in it well wait a minute there's not supposed to be any carbon-14 if something's older than a million years old and dinosaurs are supposed to be 62 million years old so something's really out of whack so a bunch of creation scientists got coal from around the united states and they took 20 samples ranging from 43 million years old to uh, 306 million years old there should be how much carbon-14 in it? Zero. Because as soon as the creature dies, it stops taking in the atmosphere of carbon-14. So they sent these out to labs. And wouldn't you know it, they all came back, not in millions of years, because carbon-14 will last that long. It came back in tens of thousands of years. Mm. They were all roughly <clears throat> within 3,000 years of each other, which means that all of the different layers in this big stack of geologic rocks that we have with layers of coal interspersed are all the same age. Mm -hmm. They all come the same event. So carbon-14 says the geologic column, number one, is not even a million years old. It says it's 
at best, at most, you could come up with 43,000. But that doesn't work good for a 6,000-year-old world. So how is that possible if the world's 6,000 years old, but the coal is somewhere around 43,000? Very simple. How much carbon-14 did I say is in, in everything right now? One, of a, one out of a trillion, right? One carbon-14 for a trillion normal carbons. Well, what if when Adam lived here, there was no carbon-14 mm. in the atmosphere? How much would he have in him? None. Mm. So if you walked into the Garden of Eden in your Wayback Machine with your carbon-14 studies, took a chunk out of Adam and said, let's see how old you are, it would say zero. How long ago did you die? Well, you're still alive. There's nothing in you. However, at our rate, Adam would have to be at least 70 million or 70,000 years old, but he's still alive. Well, how could that be? Because he didn't start with a candle like we have all the way up to the top in our, our candle illustration. He started out with a totally burned out candle. There's no candle at all to measure. Mm. So it turns out that everything early on, which didn't have as much carbon-14 in it, when you date it, you're going to say, oh, look at it, burned down this much. No, it didn't. It started short. Mm. It didn't start a foot tall. It started a quarter of a foot tall or a tenth of a foot tall. So the dates prior to the flood are pretty much uh, exaggerated. Yeah. Wow. All right. I'm going to have to listen to this two more times to absorb it all. So, so let, let's, let's talk about the, because again, my, my pastoral instinct here is to discuss all this around faith and the implication that it has to, you know, particularly today, young people's faith, the, uh, you know, tension of messages that they're, they're getting. I, I have someone very close to me who's, uh, you know, walked away from the Lord and, and a huge contributor to that are, uh, things like this, you know, the historicity of Adam. And uh, so talk, talk a little bit about um, what you lose if you don't have a historic Adam, for example. I, I, when I listened to your talk about this, I found it so, so fascinating. Um, you know, and, and as you discussed this, you could talk about, you know, can a person be a Christian and not believe in a, in a historical Adam? So why, why is all of this so important to our theology to maybe take a more practical turn here? Okay, so um, in chapter three, God says, let us make man in our own image. This is the biggest chunk I, biggest chunk I can throw out in front of pastors and other people to think about. I went to a sermon and I heard this guy talk wonderful things about mankind and and what we need to do, and how God cares about us. And he based it all on man created in God's image back in Genesis chapter 3. So afterwards, I went up and I said, and this was a kind of a, a really diverse church in a downtown city. And I, I said to him, um, how many people in here do you think believe in evolution? That we got here by evolution? He said, oh, I don't know. I said, well, they're all public school educated, right? Well, yeah, most of them are. Well, then they believe evolution is how we got here. Mm. If that's the case, your entire sermon 
is a wash. Wow. Because there's no Adam and there's and there's no Eve and there's no original sin and there's no created in the image of God. You are created through millions of years of evolution. So that means all sermons talking about created in God's image are fictitious. Mm. And I started looking at what different um, what different New Testament authors reference Genesis 1 through 11, which takes us up through the Tower of Babel. And let's see if I can find it here. There are only seven authors in the New Testament, right? We got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, and Jesus didn't write. So we've got seven authors. These authors reference Abel, marriage, Eve, Adam, Cain, races, the serpent, the tree of life, the global flood. Every single author references those except for mm. James. I couldn't find it. Mm. So if they all reference those as history, what does that tell you about the reliability of these authors? If, if it's a myth, if Adam and Eve aren't real, if the history of the Bible is not really history, then all of the New Testament authors are disqualified because they referred to it. They clearly, yeah, they clearly saw it as historical. So that just blew out every single book of the New Testament except James. So is it important? Yeah. And I, I would like to say to pastors that since most of your people in your congregation that aren't white-haired have been educated to believe that evolution is true. And mm -hmm. so you are using the Bible authoritatively. They don't believe it's authoritative anymore. They don't believe in the flood. They don't believe in Adam and Eve. They don't believe sometimes in the original sin. If that's the case, all of your preaching, even if you quote scripture, is not effective. It's not authoritative because they don't believe the Bible's authoritative. So if we don't nail down Genesis right at the beginning as being authoritative, you can kiss the whole thing goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you question the historicity of Adam, you have to question the historicity of Christ. You know, a lot of some people I know will, will uh, you know, consider Adam like, a, you know, a myth that's a great story. Uh, but then in Romans 5, then you have to also look to Christ as being, you know, allegorical. He's the second Adam. If the first Adam is not a real figure, then you might as well, uh, you know, ditch the, the whole gospel. Uh, yeah, you, you do talk about how, you know, you get rid of one, it leads to this. And in the end, you just, you don't need a savior. Right. And so it hinges a lot. I mean, the, the, the reason why a historical Adam is so important is because you, you cannot understand uh, our our depravity, our sinful nature yep. uh, without it. And you you do give the example of the you know the consequence of this. There uh, there was a, a a guy who was working with Billy Graham, Charles Templeton, who uh, was known to be a better preacher and had the potential of being more popular than Billy Graham. But uh, he he went down this path of of questioning. The, their historicity of, of the Bible, and uh, he ended up being an atheist and yeah. uh, wrote a book called My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. 
Correct. So it uh, it does have huge implications, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, there's another one that you can think about. Dan Brown that wrote the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah. He went up and asked questions of his pastor, or priest, or whatever it was, um, questioning some of this material. And the and the guy came back and said, um, "Good Christian boys don't ask these questions." Yeah, yeah. So, and now we have three million copies of a, an apostate book mm-hmm. because that pastor didn't address it and say, "We got to dig, we got to look." And I, you know, they they're giving up the millions of years easily. Ch- churches will attack the idea of evolution, but they don't want to attack the millions of years. And the millions of years gobble up all the evidence for Noah's flood and God's judgment. Yeah. And if you accept the global flood, it just ate up all the global or the millions of years because it can explain them all. Yeah. There's lots of evidence for the global flood. But um, this dating thing is what gets people off. And, And I would say to pastors, you've got to go back and challenge the age of the earth. It's not up for grabs. The genealogists tell us how old it is. It's about 6,500 years old, maybe. It's, it's very, very young. But we've all been deceived. We've been... Yeah, yeah. Well, that goes, back, that goes back again to Colossians 2.8, that this is a, a yeah. lie. It's a deception. A lot of people have been deceived by this. A lot of people are, are shipwrecking their faith because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to read what you call the atheist view and then... We'll uh, talk just briefly. We'll wrap up soon here about the, how this is. It really explains a lot of the disintegration we're seeing in culture. Let me, uh, let me tell yeah, you this guy's name. His name is yeah. A.J. Mattel Jr. Mark Mattel is an atheist. He wrote in the Free Inquiry, Volume 2, page 17, 19. Okay, why, why don't you read, read that statement and then talk about how that this whole thing is explaining Okay. Uh, you know, disintegration, society, environmentalist, yeah. animal rights, pollution, feminism, yeah. etc. So this is what uh, Mr. Mattel had to say. I think it's a Mr. A.J. Mattel. <laughs> Those liberal and neo-Orthodox Christians who regard the creation stories as myths or allegories are undermining the rest of Scripture. For if there was no Adam... There was no fall. If there was no fall, there was no hell. Mm. And if there's no hell, then there's no need for Jesus as a second Adam, an incarnate Savior, crucified and risen. As a result, the whole biblical system collapses. Evolution thus becomes the most potent weapon for destroying the Christian faith. Mm. And in a book, uh, I, I think it was by Dennett, where he called Darwinism a universal acid. Wherever you turn it, it'll eat everything up and replace mm-hmm. it with itself. And how do you see this all connected to what we're seeing today and in the increasingly rapid degrading of, of uh, culture, uh, family, yeah. morality? Um, so here are things that are answered in Genesis that if we give up Genesis, we don't know how to solve. Gender confusion. We're seeing that all over mm-hmm. the place. But Genesis chapter 2 tells us we're male and female. 
the idea of pollution, feminism, homosexuality, pornography, environmentalism, the idea that all religions are the same. You ever see that thing on the bumper sticker? Yeah. Yeah. You know, exist. Yeah. It means the person inside is not a religious person. They're secular and they're saying, you guys are all stupid. Get along. Yeah. Environmentalism, birth control, abortion, racism, animal rights, all of those things flow from a faulty view of mankind and biology. And scripture lays all this stuff out for us and answers it in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. There's only one human race. Racism is in, is in your head. It's There aren't different races. Yeah. You know, like, you look at dogs. Are they different races? No, they're, they're different varieties, but they're all dogs. Yeah. There's one human race. So of all people in the world, Christians should have been saying all along, racism is a myth. There is no such thing. However, listen to the title of Charles Darwin's book. It's called The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So where did races come from? Hmm. Darwin. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking how, you know, evolution, humanism is a, is a worldview. It's, it's a religion. Uh, but it's one that offers no hope. You know, to people might explain things the way they are, but it offers no hope. Uh, yeah. The gospel does offer hope. Yeah. And so our, our appeal here to people listening, maybe some who are even beginning to question their faith, you want to go to a, on a path that is, that is fa uh, futile, fatal, fatalistic, yeah. or, or do you want to choose a path that invites you to, uh, as a sinner, to embrace the Savior mm -hmm. who came into this polluted, distorted, confused world to make us whole again through his work on the cross? So wonderful. My, uh, my dad jokes, I think it's funny, that if there were no God, there would be no atheists. <laughs> well, here's a, one you can put on also at, at the end here. And, and that is a lot of people will object to Christianity because of all the miracles. It seems like miraculous, pie in the sky, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the Big Bang, which is their alternative to the Bible, is all based on miracles of physics. Yeah. And I, I, I like to say at, at the end of my talks, everybody needs a miracle. Mm. Everybody trying to explain the universe will be pushed eventually back to a miracle. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and I hear people say it takes more faith to believe in that as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I, like, I like to end by having my guest ask me a question, uh, whether it's related to what we've talked about or uh, or anything. I've really, I've really loved this part. It's been a, just kind of a lighter way to finish up. And... Yeah, but I'm not light. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's more reason why we need to do this. Because <laughs> my question would be, what's the biggest challenge facing pastors today? Wow. I think it is an increasingly um, skeptical culture. And uh, particularly even within our own congregation, you know, the whole uh, the, the whole uh, transgender 
you know, embracing, loving people. What, what does it mean to love people and still believe in the sin that the gospel talks about? And I, I think that as, as we, you know, I answer that question related to what we talk about, I would say is, is uh, probably ignorance, the, the inability, not having been trained to know how to address these questions. And uh, I've been driven to in a new way in the last three years, again, because of someone very close to me who has gone this direction. And uh, it's, it's actually, I'll be honest with you, it's why I, I thought about interviewing you about this, because I, you know, I think back 20, 30 years ago, this was just great conversation, you know, exchange of ideas and, you know, discussing opposing worldviews. But this is having huge impact and consequence in the lives of people. So, well, I heard well, this recently say it comes down to this. The reason why we're having Christian deconstructionism rampant mm-hmm. is two things. Love of self and love of sin. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, you ended us with a heavy note again. I was trying to keep it lighter, lighthearted, but okay, I don't know how to do. Oh, I, <laughs> I can end up. Uh, uh, how about I end with the light bulb over your head? You see that? Okay, that's not a light bulb. It's a dark sucker. It what it does? Oh. It sucks dark out of your room. You ever notice when you take a candle, you light it, and there's a lot of light, and then what, mm-hmm. it, what color's the wick? Black. That's right. That's all the dark that it sucked out of the room while it was burning. <laughs> Your light bulbs go black when they die. Yeah. You mm. know, dark wow. is heavier than light. It goes to the bottom of the lake. You just got to get over this idea that there's such a thing as light. They're just dark suckers. They are not light bulbs. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck, thank you so much. You did a wonderful job. I, I really appreciate your time and, and also your years of giving of yourself in this way and the way God has gifted you and, and, uh, and, and, and given you just the insight and the passion for this. It's, uh, it's been a, a great contribution to a lot of people I know. And uh, thank you for sharing your heart with us today. You're welcome. All right. Lord bless you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next time, stay encouraged and and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all of that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged.